Hello, everyone. My name is Ron Small, and welcome to the Spotcast, Episode 6, which you can find at swayproductions.com and on iTunes. This is a show aimed at dissecting the nature and the process of those involved in commercial production. Today's guest is the great photographer-turned-filmmaker, Vincent Laforet. Vincent began as a photojournalist, covering everything from the Beijing Olympics to the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. You can check out his amazing, comprehensive photography book, Visual Stories, which is a fantastic book, even for those not necessarily interested in photography. However, I would recommend it to anyone interested in the power of images and the psychology behind how to go about taking the best images you can, given your situation. Vincent has had a remarkable three years or so in filmmaking, having begun this portion of his life with the camera demo slash short film Reverie, which was shot on the Canon 5D Mark II, and probably did more than anything to sell that camera. From there, you can see a steady maturation as a filmmaker, uh, leading up to Mobius, a short film commissioned by Canon to promote their new camera, the C300. That film is extremely well made, well shot, well acted, it, it looks great. Vincent is able to elicit quite a bit of tension from the story, to the point where it being uh, ostensibly a camera demo falls by the wayside. It really becomes about the story and the filmmaking for me, uh, which in a sense might be the ultimate selling point of the C300. You don't even really notice it. And here is my interview with Vincent Laforet. Was going from photography to filmmaking a, a transition that you always envisioned yourself making? I did. And the funny part is I just met a friend of mine at Sundance um, who told me, you know, you were always talking about that in New York Times. And to be honest, I forgot about that. Um, I'm so involved in being here now and making that transition uh, that I kind of forget that, you know, ever since I started photography, I knew that at some point I'd want to go into filmmaking. Um, I've got a biological dad who directed Emmanuel uh, in France, and I've got a dad who brought me up who was a premier magazine. So I've been around film sets my whole life. Your father directed Emmanuel? Yes. I actually recorded that off of Cinemax when I was probably far younger than I should have been. Okay, <laughs> cool. I mean, it's, it's, it was the longest-running French film in the Champs-Élysées in history, so it definitely made an impression. Oh, without a doubt. The, uh, there's been a, a slew of sequels, uh, even to this day. And, and you know a, a film series has been around for a while when there's uh, an Emmanuel in space, uh, which there was. Yeah. I don't think he did any of the others. I think he did one or two more and Gwendolyn and stuff like that. But uh, he, yeah. You didn't get to be on any of those sets when you were a kid, uh, did no, you? No, definitely not. I was, uh, I was way too young for that. And uh, I think he was making that just around the time I was, I was in the early years of my, my life. So you've done sort of a trilogy of really inventive short films, I guess you'd call them uh, camera demos. Yes. From doing Reverie for the 5D to Nocturne with the 1D Mark IV, and more recently, Mobius for the C300. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about how Mobius came about and what the C300 added to telling that story. Well, as usual, doing these camera tests uh, is generally not as easy a process as people might think. It's always very touch and go. They never know if they're going to get the cameras in time. Uh, in this situation, they had four filmmakers working on it. Um, I think at least a dozen or two dozen people asked to do it. Um, I finally got the nod about three months, uh, sorry, three weeks before the shoot that we were going to go ahead and, and do this. Um, I had some rough you know, treatment proposals that I submitted to them knowing the camera was coming out. Mm -hmm. And eventually, uh, we were given the green light three weeks before the shoot. Um, and we really worked on, on the, as good of a script as we could during that short period of time um, and all the casting and pre-production. Did that script already exist or was it developed completely for that project? It was developed completely for that project uh, in those three weeks, which is a long time for me for, for Canon. So Reverie, we had 12 hours. Uh, Nocturne, we had 72 hours. So three weeks felt like a relative luxury. Initially, when you did Reverie, that was not a planned thing. That was no. that was something that, that you had asked them to, to do. Exactly, yeah. I mean, um, I had to beg them, actually. They, I happened to be in the offices at Canon to have lunch with someone when the prototype of the 5D Mark II came out, and I kind of talked my way into getting my hands on it. And, um, you know, they said no for about four hours, and on the, on the seventh time that I, I asked them, they, I think they just, I tired them out and they let me borrow it over the weekend. And, um, you know, we had about 12 hours to prepare. We were shooting the next, and I found out the camera existed around 4 o'clock on a Friday. 
And at 4 p.m. the next day on Saturday, we were shooting the first shoot, uh, the first shots for Reverie. Wow. Well, yeah. so, so when they saw what you did, did, did they like poop themselves? I mean, were they, were they like completely amazed? Uh, I think uh, there were some expletives coming back my way uh, in a positive way, like what the yeah. et cetera, et cetera, did you just do? And I'm like, I just shot something over the weekend. They're like, you were just supposed to send us an email on Monday <laughs> saying what you thought of the camera. Right. So, uh, yeah, they were very, very pleasantly surprised. Um, the Reverie almost never made it out into the public because it was shot with a prototype camera. And uh, Canon Japan or Canon Inc. had a policy of never releasing prototype footage. But um, this was the first exception they made after a week-long debate. Wow. wow. And, and, and that kind of became the best advertising, I think, that Canon could have ever hoped for for that exactly. camera. They called it the, best, the most successful marketing campaign uh, for a camera in Canon's history in, in the USA, and ironically, it wasn't a campaign at all. <laughs> what was your intention when you, when you got that camera? Were you intending to make something that would kind of blow them away and, and put yourself out there like that, or, or were you just thinking about testing it out and having a good time? Uh, basically, testing and having a good time, that was probably the most fun thing I've ever done because there was no, no expectation whatever. That was actually the, the first video I ever shot. I'd never shot anything prior to that except maybe a few little um, you know, video clips of my kids, but I'd never actually edited anything or shot a short or a film or a commercial or even a documentary. So it was really my first foray into going into this stuff, and I just went out, uh, hired two models, uh, went out with three friends uh, over two nights in New York and just shot um, you know, a bad cologne commercial is what I've, I've come to call it. <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the reality was that I was using... Um, you know, all of my scouting experience from being a photojournalist in the New York Times for seven years. So I knew the city inside and out. And I had a, a bevy of, of still lenses at my disposal, uh, very little film gear. So I just, um, you know, shot a very simple, um, frankly, boring narrative that was edited in a very nonlinear way in the end by a great editor named Andre Costantini. Um, the initial edit that I saw of Reverie was, you know, on the second playthrough, I was like, I, this, is, this is painful. And I had seen a sequence he'd done on the bottom of the timeline that was very nonlinear. And I said, you know, can you do the entire film like that? And he said, sure. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to go and, um, and let's go for it. We've got seven hours. Let's go for it. Tell me about what happened in your career after you made that. Were you thrust into the world yeah. of filmmaking? In, in a big way. And, you know, I was invited to Industrial Light and Magic to show this a few weeks later uh, to 500 people in their theater uh, in San Francisco. Uh, I was invited to, to meet Oren Aviv, the head of production at Disney. And I did four screenings there, four private screenings for a bunch of executives. Uh, I was invited to Ampus, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, to do screenings. Um, and basically, you know, um, I was well aware of my lack of experience, to be very honest. Um, you know, this was, I had 72 hours of, of experience as a filmmaker or director, DP, whatever, and, and um, here I was presenting some of the most important people in the business. So I was very aware, very aware of where I was standing, uh, especially given that I had 22, or at that time, 20 years of experience as a, as a photographer, working at some of the highest levels in that, in that realm. So um, I took it easy. You know, I, 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 I took all the meetings... Um, I, I explained what I knew about the technology and about the camera and about its strengths, but I also knew that there was a, a steep learning curve ahead of me. Before that, you were thinking about becoming a filmmaker at some point. Yes. Well, pretty much my whole adult life, I've, I've been fascinated with film, definitely a film buff, uh, always studied them. But it's a very big difference between studying something and, and you know, learning camera movement and pacing and all that and actually being on set and doing it and also learning everything on the, on the front end and back end in terms of finances, hierarchies, you know, all the business stuff and all the intricacies of being a director, producer, and, and DP. When you did Reverie, did you pay for everything out of your own pocket? Yep. I spent five grand of my own money. Um, most of it went to the helicopter right. and the rest of the models and the editor. And uh, it was the best five grand I could probably have ever spent in terms of self-promotion. Uh, the video was seen two million times in the first week yeah. alone. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, what was the budget like on uh, on Mobius? Mobius w was in uh, was about one hundred twenty five thousand dollars, which is definitely a big bump from five thousand. But uh, you know, everyone was paid on the crew, and uh, we were outside of L.A. Uh, in the Mojave Desert, so it was you know relatively cheap for what we did in three days of shooting. 
uh, with Russian arms and a remote control helicopters and steady cam operators and lighting and permits and having a crew of um, 60 people, I think, at one point. So, um, you know, it's to some people who are not, in, not aware of what the typical budget is in, in L.A., um, it may sound like a big budget, and it is a lot of money, but for a, a Hollywood crew, I've, I've had actually a commercial director come to me and say, what did you have, a million, a million and a quarter on this? And I was like, no, not at all, <laughs> about ten times less. So we really maximized the, what we could get out of it um, because we were using you know, good people from L.A., you know, not, not students and not, not free labor. So the response to that has been, uh, that short has been really effusive. Uh, mm-hmm. ha- has that opened up any doors uh, for you career-wise? Definitely. Uh, I'm working on my first feature right now uh, and developing it, uh, and I'm getting to meet a lot more people. I just spent uh, 10 days at Sundance, and um, you know, the reaction is definitely quite positive to that film. Uh, you know, it's been unusually positive, and I think... Um, it's not necessarily the, the kind of film I really want to make down the line, but I think it was an important film to make in terms of showing that you know you can do a, a quote-unquote Hollywood-type film with action and supernatural and sci-fi. Um, you know, I'd like to do something a little more emotion, a little more depth, but you're always somewhat limited when you're doing a, an eight-minute film in terms of how far you can develop a character and uh, the type of film you want to do. What kind of films inspire you? Oh, they're all over the place, to be honest. So, you know, I'll love anything from, uh, you know, obviously, any Kubrick, Orson Welles, uh, to Cinema Paradiso, Blade Runner, you name it. But they tend to be in the sci-fi um, realm and, and drama. And something, basically, the best description I can give is something that when you walk away from the film, you want to discuss it, think about it, or you feel something, and you feel moved uh, in a way. Uh, I don't really, you know, I appreciate popcorn movies, and I appreciate action movies. But um, I'm, I don't know that I want to make movies that, just, that are just pure entertainment. I like to make movies that, that cause people to think about, um, you know, either uh, relationships between father and son or uh, political issues or, or societal issues, things that, you know, a little bit more cerebral, not to the point of being, you know, obtuse. And, um, you know, I, I'm French, so um, French films can be very, very uh, intellectual and, and uh, you know, stuffy at times. So I'd like to find a, a happy medium. You have a really rich background in uh, in controlling your images, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's a photographer or or DP. Yeah, what, what's it like when you're directing and, and sort of having to give up uh, a a bit or a lot of control to your cinematographer? At first, it was very very difficult for me. Uh, especially, it wasn't the cinematographer as much as not being able to actually be behind the camera, because as a, as a still photographer, you're literally um, looking at you know whether you pan or tilt. Uh, in the other direction, one inch or two will make or break an, an image as a still photograph. Uh, it's a game of, of millimeters or inches. And to allow an operator to take over, let alone DP, was very tough. Um, but more recently, you know, I found better and better DPs. Uh, Polly Morgan on Mobius um, you know, was incredibly easy to work with. Uh, she's incredibly talented. And uh, quite frankly, I didn't really know where, uh, you know, who shot was which most of the time because it was very seamless. We storyboarded the entire short together, uh, shot by shot, you know, at least a week ahead. So by the time we got on set, we had a very clear understanding of what we were looking to do. A friend of mine who's a DP mentioned to me that when he's DPing, he feels like he's using um, kind of a different part of his brain than when uh, he's uh, directing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's it like for you uh, when you're directing and DPing a spot uh, like you did for your Mountain Dew uh, Whiteout? Sure. I mean, when there's no, when there's no, uh, I think it's relatively easy. Well, I, that that's a an, an overstatement. It's not. It's never really easy, but it's it's relative to doing something where you have actors. In other words, so if you're if you're doing something where it's just visual, and there's actually no dialogue, it's relatively easy in that you know you're you're really just uh, focused on the tempo, the camera movement, um, as well as obviously the visual content. But the moment I have an actor in there that has to do any sort of performance whatsoever, I will never, ever uh, direct NDP. I don't think um, you, can, you can be basically studying the light, the movement, um, and the composition of your frame intently and also be paying attention carefully to the performance of someone. Um, you've got to split those roles up, I think. So, that, you know, any dialogue, DP. <laughs> right. Director. Right. Yeah. So you wrote a book several months ago called uh, Visual Stories. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a really informative um, book about about your history and techniques and photography with uh, biographical elements as well. Mm-hmm. In the book, you say, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing, um, instead of pursuing praise, spend time studying failures. I think it's it's one of the secrets, at least for me as a photographer and as a filmmaker, is that um, when you study your successes, you don't really learn much um, because that's pretty much the best you can do already. Uh, but if you if you study your failures, um, it's probably the single most important thing you can do um, in that you need to understand what your thought process was or what caused you to make those mistakes and make sure that the next time you um, face those same challenges, um, you don't make that same mistake. The secret to becoming a good photographer quickly and a successful photographer is to never make the same mistake twice. And I think the same can be said about directing. Um, it, you know, and one of my little tricks is I love to watch really bad movies or TV shows uh, late, late at night because you, you really, instead of saying, wow, this is so bad, um, you study what makes it so bad. Is it, is it the score? Is it the acting or is, in fact, you know, the, the actor is pretty good, but the screenplay is so horrific that there's nothing they can do to, to help the, get themselves out of it? Um, or is it the, the lack of camera movement or wrong camera movement or the lensing or framing? And you'd be surprised at how when you really study bad films or bad TV shows, you can really pick up on some really key um, things not to do as a filmmaker. What's a, a recent example of, of something like that that you watched? That's a hard one to say because I'd have to throw people under the bus. But I'll, I'll say that I recently saw a short that someone did, and I was just not getting into it. And the acting was great, but I just could not get into the short. And I was scratching my head during the premiere, and I was going, why, why am I not you know, being sucked into this? Because the acting's not that bad. And I realized halfway through the film, or really, you know, frankly, in the first five minutes, the camera's not moving. It's stationary all the time. And uh, that, you know, especially in modern filmmaking, will really take an audience out of it. You know, I think that moving the camera, especially when you watch someone like Scorsese, um, is such an important part of how he tells a story. And there's a very big reason as to why he moves the camera the way he does. It's nothing's done randomly. You know, people always ask me, why, why move the camera here or there? I say, well, all of that starts with a story. The story leads you to you know, how you frame a shot and how you move the camera, if at all. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned Citizen Kane, which you know, is, a, yes. is a very old film, but has a ton of camera movement and a, a ton of dynamic shots Yes. Uh, to tell the story. But then, then there's some films where it's, it's, it's constant camera movement and it's, it's all MTV and it's just nonstop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, for example, Michael Bay's a good example. Uh, his camera's flying. That's who I was thinking of, actually. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, there's a great series, um, uh, great being uh, kind of an oxymoron here, um, on, um, in uh, Pearl Harbor where they're uh, in a pit together, uh, um, uh, the two main actors. Who was it? Uh, it was Josh uh, Harden and Ben Affleck. Yeah. Exactly, the two of yeah. them are there, and it's being intercut like with seventeen different cameras. And it's right. like, oh my god, I don't need a medium close up, super close up, uh, you know, close up uh, ECU and all these back and forth. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, but at the that's you know, <laughs> when you watch them in like Transformers, there's not that much depth to the script. So I always tell people if there's not much depth to the script, if there's not that much depth to the story, it's hard to motivate camera movement because there's no real. You're not trying to say anything. You're just trying to give pure visual uh, fodder. And uh, that's why I really, really work really hard at finding really strong scripts because that motivates everything from you know, the dialogue, obviously, to the wardrobe, to the location, to the camera movement. Everything has, you know, moves for a reason and happens for a reason. And if there's not much depth to the script, there's not much that much you can do with it as a director. I mean, you can definitely flex your muscles and pull out some you know, from your bag of tricks, but it's so much easier to direct, you know, a good film, I think, when you have great original content. And it's interesting to see how directors make the choices they make. Like, mm-hmm. like Tony Scott will tend to, uh, he, he, he'll direct dialogue scenes with a, a helicopter. Yes, at times. exactly, exactly. And, or, or build a 360 around a moving train. You know? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or have a train crash into a cop car every now and then just just to do it. Yeah, well, he's had you know he's 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 had some great movies though, and and so does so has his brother, 
uh, to say the least. So uh, there's definitely a pretty rich tradition in that family uh, that I, I wouldn't mind uh, trading places with either one of those guys. So a quick note on the book, I, I really recommend it for anyone who's interested in the, in the power of images and, and what it takes to, to create those images. Mm-hmm. I, sure. You go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the funny part about that book is that Peach Pit was on me to do that for over a year, close to two and a half years. And I kept saying, I'm not dead yet. I'm not retiring. You know, uh, At the time when they initially asked me, I think I was 35 years old or 34, and I was like, it's too early for me to write was effect- effectively a biography uh, on my on my photography, and then I realized that you know, I really don't shoot that many stills at all anymore. I may shoot one or two still campaigns a year, so um, I agreed to do it with um, you know uh, Barry and X who who helped me do the book, and uh, I was really happy with the result because it's not it's not a how-to book by any means. It's not meant to teach you you know this is aperture or shutter speed. It's really meant to take the reader uh, into if you will my mind and my thought process and. And also, more importantly, just the the uh, challenges that I and all photographers have to face when they're overseas or when they're covering a big event like the Olympics or just everyday photographs for a newspaper or features for Geographic. Um, and the best compliment I got was from my sister, who's not into photography, who said she really, really enjoyed it. And that, that to me, I think, is when, when you can inter- interest someone who's not you know, in photography or wanting to become a photographer in a book that you write about photography, that's probably a good sign. Absolutely. And... It- and you were a photojournalist for a large part of your life, and, and some of the images in this book uh, from your coverage of, uh, of Hurricane Katrina and, and post-war mm-hmm. Afghanistan are, are absolutely harrowing and, and breathtaking. Thank you. Yeah, and, and the book also sort of acts, as you were saying um, a bit, you know, you're putting it off a little, it kind of acts as a closing chapter to this section of your life. Yeah, it does, sadly. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, uh, it's, it's funny how... Uh, how this world really likes to pigeonhole you and say, well, now you're a director and now you're a DP. You're no longer a photographer, even though you don't ever make a statement saying, I don't want to shoot photos anymore. Um, but the reality is I've, I've had the most fascinating three and a half years since I did Reverie uh, and enjoyed every single second of it. Uh, I've, I've, I've just absolutely um, loved every minute on set. And I've actually, you know, initially I had a very tough time in pre-production because um, it was a bit of a, uh, a contradiction to the way you work as a photographer, especially a photojournalist, that's very reactive, whereas being a director is really very proactive in terms of the amount of time you put in meetings and in thought um, in terms of your movie uh, prior to ever you know, stepping foot on set. I would say that 80 to 90% of your work is done before you ever set foot on set, which is very different than uh, what a photographer does. Mm-hmm. Did you intend the book to sort of be uh, kind of a closing chapter? It, it, it no. even ends with a, a bit about reverie. Yeah. Yep. That, I did not intend for that, and I hope it's not a closing chapter. But at the same time, um, I definitely had 20 uh, action-packed and fun years as a, as a photographer working for pretty much every single magazine in the world, whether it was Perry Match, Stern, Time, Newsweek, National Geographic, uh, and working for the New York Times on staff. So. I definitely feel spoiled in that regard, um, and uh, my goal now is to make you know two, three, four, five films uh, for the rest of my life that I'm proud of. Now that you are a director, having wanted to to do that for a really long time, what are the challenges in being a director that you didn't necessarily anticipate? Um, that it will exercise every single um, part of your brain. Uh, in that it's not just being on set and telling people what to do. Uh, it's about having an affinity towards good writing, good music, so when you work with you know, a composer, uh, good lighting, um, a little bit of style, uh, being aware of what's going on in the community around you, in the society, uh, in the world, uh, being able to work with actors, being able to deal with, with production budgets, with logistics, uh, with egos, um, with talent, um, motivating people. You know, it really exercises not just your ability to say action and frame a shot and move a camera. You really have to learn how to work with everybody on set um, and how to get the most out of them. Uh, for me, in a positive way, I don't, I don't threaten people or scare people. I try to really make them invested and feel invested in the project and, and reap the benefits as much as they can. Because I really, really enjoy collaboration. You know, I did work by myself for the most part as a photojournalist out in the field uh, for co- uh, almost two decades. So when I'm on set or in meetings with people, I actually really enjoy it because uh, I do really believe in the adage that you surround yourself with people that are more talented 
and more intelligent than you are as a filmmaker or as a business person. And, and I think that's the goal of any good director is to just grab the most amazing pool of talent that you can together for that period of time that you're shooting and pre-producing and, and in post and produce the best product that is so much greater than the individual parts. As a director, how do you feel about working in commercials in terms of the creativity you're able to express? I think it's a lot more limiting than, um, than working on a narrative, uh, especially these days in this economy where a lot of the ad agencies are afraid of losing their clients. They're a lot less prone to taking risks. So every once in a while, I do get a commercial client that really wants to throw it out there and try something different, and I really cherish those moments. But at the same time, you know, I found a lot of commercial clients or, or agencies um, fall underneath the weight of the client who wants something X way or Y way, and um, they're not willing to push back as much because they don't want to risk, you know, um, losing the client. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, the agency is supposed to come up with the creative, and the director is supposed to help uh, make it come to life and contribute to that. Um, sometimes clients do know what they want, and they they have they have a good idea, but most of the time. You know, clients are great at making their products and their brand, uh, but it's, you know, you go to ad agencies and to, to commercial directors to help, you know, add a little magic to that and bring it to the next level. And it's, it's important to do that. What's an example of a client that was willing to take chances uh, in terms of a, a commercial production you worked on? Uh, I think uh, the latest commercial that I, I really like was the famous footwear commercial which was shot on the Phantom. Oh, sure. At 600 frames a second. You know, when you think about the fact that, you know, it's been running two years in a row uh, and it makes people tend to recognize that, that commercial because it makes you feel, you know, a little Christmassy and, and right. you know, feel a, a little sense of wonder and it's a beautiful commercial. And when you realize it's all about selling shoes, you're kind of like, huh, well, that was well done, you know? Exactly. Um, as opposed to some other, you know, jobs I did where it was like, um, okay, we did a good job of, of knocking on all 12 points that your marketing told you you need to hit in this commercial, but we made a commercial that's not that uh, appealing to people and doesn't really grab their attention. So you DP'd that spot. Yep. And, yep. and how did that come about, that job? Uh, I knew the director for a while uh, through, through friends, and uh, he just called me and said, you want to do this commercial? He showed me the boards. And uh, on the one hand, I was petrified because I'd never shot something uh, in total darkness with a phantom and I was really afraid of the amount of light we would need. We shot with a quarter million watts of light to wow. get F F2 um, and that was technically very challenging and daunting and we even had uh, gaffers in Canada, we shot in Vancouver, uh, telling my gaffer that this is never going to work. Literally the guy's like, this is never going to work, you're not going to have enough light. And uh, oh, That's fantastic. Yeah, and my gaffer ha had a great retort, he said because uh, it was actually the key grip he said, flags and bags, brother. You <laughs> just take care of the flags and bags. I'll do, I'll do my job. And uh, I, I love that line. I'll never forget it. Uh, but he kind of put him in his place. And, and lo and behold, there was definitely more than enough light or just the right amount of light and, and very beautiful light. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that commercial. Was that release specifically storyboarded? It was, it was, that one was very carefully storyboarded because we were doing it with motion control rigs. We thought we were going to do, um, we did do multiple passes on some of the shots and we composited. So there's one shot in there where the guy's shoe comes out and hits the yeah. snow. And you'll notice that at F2, it's impossible for the shoe and uh, the actress to be in focus. And we did that by doing that with a motion control rig and running the exact same action on the motion control rig twice. And one was focused on the shoe and obviously the other one was focused on the young lady. So um, it was a very, it was a pretty darn technical uh, commercial between you know the snow, the high frame rate, the amount of light, and the motion control all at once. Was that rig used for any other shots? Because that, that's definitely the one that I noticed. Uh, we we used I'd say it was fifty fifty, just uh, old old school dolly, and the other fifty percent was moco. So let's get into the behind the stills campaign that you mm -hmm. did. What was yeah. the genesis behind that? Sure. The genesis behind that for me was, you know, I, I'd gotten uh, a fair amount of uh, web notoriety with Reverie and with um, Nocturne, um, and I was kind of becoming a little bit of, you know, Canon's poster boy, if you will. And I was like, well, now it's time to try and pay it forward a little bit. You know, I was getting a little bit tired of all the intention I was getting, and I also thought, you know, this is this is really is a a a movement that's about the, the democratization of filmmaking to a certain degree with these cameras. 
So I went to Canon and Gray Advertising. I said, let's do, a, let's do a project where we can involve people, you know, out large and give them a chance to be discovered. And that was the idea behind it. My original idea uh, was a little bit different. I wanted them to submit treatments and have uh, Canon pay for the production of each short. But that was too expensive. So we had people just, you know, basically the behind the stills for people who don't know was uh, I was given a photograph and asked to shoot a short film uh, based upon it uh, or short chapter of a film and ended on an, my own photograph. And we all knew that the final film would be eight chapters long. And the idea was to leave it out and open to the audience to take us in whatever direction they wanted. So, you know, hundreds of filmmakers from across the country um, and thousands of people looked in upon it and entered um, this film contest that uh, took place over eight months. And it uh, was uh, shown at Sundance last year. Do you plan on doing any other campaigns like that? It's a really interesting kind of out-of-the-box uh, approach to marketing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I'm talking with Vimeo right now about doing something else. Uh, these are huge undertakings, mostly because of the legal crap, to be honest. Uh, you'd be amazed at how, when you do interstate stuff, uh, the amount of um, legalities you have to deal with when you have contests. It was just crazy. At one point, I wanted to change a judge, or not change, add a judge. And it was like, no, this contest has been bonded in all 48 states so far, and you know, it would take three weeks to change a simple thing. So it's a big undertaking to do a, nas a nationwide contest for a big corporation. But I'd definitely love to do it. And uh, you know, one of the films that I'm working on right now um, actually has a big social network uh, component to it uh, that you know, I hope to be able to share with people at some point soon. You're currently rep by, um, by Accomplice. Um, yes, in the U.S., uh, like um, David Jellison, who was actually my guest um, on the last episode. Mm -hmm. uh, do you uh, do you ever hang out with the other directors rep by that company? Do, do you guys have like a bowling night? Uh, we don't actually. Uh, and uh, truth be told, I I just left them, so I'm now looking for a new representation. If anyone is listening out there, but uh, I've been meeting other people. Um, the executive producer that was at Accomplice, which was, which was the Joneses before, that hired me left a little while ago. Uh, right when I was uh, doing Mobius. So uh, I'm in the process of looking for new representation, specifically representation that not only covers commercials but also narrative films um, and other, other things that, that I do. Because I, you know, I feel that you know, commercials is just one of, the, one of the parts or one of the things that I do. I obviously want to make narrative films, but I also am really invested uh, in the social networking aspect of what I do, um, whether it's speaking or Twittering or or, or uh, posting on the blog, I, I really think it's important for filmmakers to kind of think out of the box these days in the way that they reach out to their audience and connect with it and contribute to the, you know, to the entire process, as well as sharing and, you know, and, and being, you know, participating with other people. So tell me about initially being signed by that company. Were you actively pursuing getting signed to do commercials? Um, I was, um, and that happened relatively easily, to be honest, just through I mean, Hollywood and, and filmmaking and directing in general is so much to do with word of mouth and who you know. So, you know, that came about uh, from talking to a few producers I knew and line producers. And, um, you know, it was relatively quick and simple. Um, and um, the harder part for me now is not just getting signed, but getting signed with the right type of agency uh, where I fit in because you, you can't, um, you don't want to go to an agency that does commercials that you're not interested in or the type, you know, the type of clients. Um, or also, you want to see how you fit in. You don't want to have five directors that have the exact same style you do on the roster. Um, and you don't want it to be too big. You don't want it to be too small. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, the, the old, uh, the, little, the bed's too hard or the bed's too soft. <laughs> yeah. Are you currently taking meetings with different companies and kind of feeling yep. each other out? Absolutely. I've been going around uh, right after Mobius wrapped and it was premiered at Paramount. Um, I started taking a few meetings at the end of the year, which is not the best time of the year because of the holidays, of course. And uh, I'm still meeting people now, and I've, I've got like two or three offers that are interesting and I'm just considering. And I'm not in a rush. That's, that's the, the big thing that, you know, that I've, I've learned over time is there's no real rush. Um, it's, it's best to take your time and um, find the right fit. Um, I'm able to make a good enough living as is. People still contact me directly uh, for a lot of projects that um, – I'm not desperately seeking representation the way I may have been at, 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 other, at other times. Do you still get contacted to, to do still stuff and, and you know, to DP? Sure. Uh, DP, uh, not that often. I think I've made it relatively clear that 
unless it's a really big project or a fantastic director. Um, I'm, I'm not as vested in DPing as I am in directing. Um, I, I spent 20 years framing shots up as a photographer and worrying about light and weather. Uh, so I, I find that slightly frustrating uh, now because it's not that, you know, I've had 20 years of DPing experience, but I do have 20 years of shooting experience. Whereas directing, I feel, you know, it's so much more connected with the content um, and all the aspects of, the, of whatever project I'm working on. I really enjoy it that much more. But I still do DP once in a while. Absolutely. When you're repped uh, by a commercial production company like Accomplice, are, are you allowed to do work that comes outside of them? Well, when I was at Accomplice uh, slash the Joneses, any commercial project in the U.S. Uh, as a director would have to be done for them. Everything else is on my own. How many projects did you do for them? Uh, about half a dozen in one year. Uh, I did about another half dozen DPing jobs. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's interesting how, how everything ebbs and flows. So for the first, I think there was a little bit of a lull talking to some people uh, mid last year for some, um, uh, whereas at the beginning of the year I was just back to back to back to back to back the first half of the year. So, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's an interesting job. You just definitely have to uh, always be thinking and uh, being proactive. You just can't sit back and wait uh, in this career. And, and, you know, Mobius is a good example of that. You know, so the second half of the year last year was a little bit slow. Um, but I went and found my own project and pitched that to Canon, and it kept me more than busy for three months of the year. How familiar were you with the world of uh, of commercial production before you became involved in it as a director? Uh, somewhat familiar in that I was doing it as a, as a photographer for years prior to that, and it's similar, just on a much smaller scale. Uh, a lot less union and, and SAG rules to be aware of, but um, you know, when you're a photographer, you're basically running a very small production company all on your own uh, without much support. So you do learn the ins and outs of business and, and relationships, et cetera, and of production. Um, you know, it was definitely daunting when I worked on some of the larger uh, productions uh, as a commercial director or DP in terms of feeling, oh, my God, how am I supposed to do all this stuff? And then you realize, well, that's why, there's every, you know, that's why we have line producers, art directors, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is that everything's parsed pretty carefully amongst several people. And um, as long as every you know key department head is, does a good job, you're going to be in good shape. I really like the uh, the Volkswagen uh, Perfect Fit ad that yeah. you directed. Yep, yep. Uh, you go ahead. And then that was that was a funny one. That was um, that was one of those things that got put together very quickly. That was a, kind of a spec ad uh, done with uh, VW and Canon actually to show off the Mark IV as well. Um, and um, we actually had an incredibly small budget for that. Oh, really? Uh, really small. Uh, I think it was 20-something thousand dollars wow. uh, to shoot over two days with the Russian arm in downtown L.A. with uh, CHP escorts. But we pulled it off. <laughs> so who puts up the money for that? Was that Canon? Uh, on that one, that was Canon, yeah. They, they paid uh, that money for that production to help promote their camera and do a little behind-the-scenes video on, on what we did uh, with the Mark IV. So I think it was one of the first times that, that an HDSLR had been hooked up to a Russian arm. Uh, with all the bells and whistles. So it was right. nice to see that happen, yeah. In that spot, the Volkswagen passes through quite a few buildings with uh, different kind of patterns and, and things like that. Uh, since you were shooting mm -hmm. with the Canon uh, 1D Mark IV, uh, which, uh, like uh, all DSLRs, has a propensity for uh, more A, uh, was there any issues like that that you had to contend with? Uh, not too many, except there's one shot at, towards the end where you see a brick wall uh, and we were, my plan was to shoot that entire commercial at 60 frames a second at 720p. Right. But uh, the Canons are really not kind to Moiray at, at that resolution. Um, so I had to scrap the entire idea of doing slow motion for the commercial as, as a result. Uh, but it's nice to see all those problems gone now with the C300. I mean, it's crystal clear image uh, without, with zero artifacting, um, which is really nice to see because, you know, I, I know HDSLR is as well, if not better than most, and mm -hmm. I, I know uh, all of its uh, warts and all of its all of its beauties, um, you know, all at once. And uh, you do get tired of dealing with the moray issues and the, sh the softness issues, the compression artifacting, um, the lack of time code. Mm -hmm. But it's still a pretty amazing little camera for what it does. All whether it's a 7D, a 5D, a Rebel, or, or a 1D Mark IV. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about the C300. How does that compare for you to uh, DSLRs? Um, it's just a grown-up camera. It's, it's like an F3, basically. 
um, in terms of all the features that it has. Uh, it may not be as impressive on paper as the F3 in certain aspects. Definitely in the terms of frame rate, it's lacking a little bit. But uh, the quality is pretty astounding. Uh, when you do side-by-side -side tests with a 5D, the dynamic range is significantly greater. Mm -hmm. um, and the quality of the image is so clean. Um, I really think that people are going to love this camera as they start to work with it. Because when I first saw the specs on paper, I was completely unimpressed myself. Right. And then when I saw the image on screen, I was like, whoa, this is actually pretty darn nice. Um, you know? Yeah, and a lot of people are comparing it to the Alexa yep. favorably. How, how do you feel about that comparison? I think it's very apt. I think it's, it's the cheap version of the Alexa that can complement it really well. So if you have to have a B or a C camera with your Alexa package, I don't think I would hesitate to use a C300. One of the first things that my colorist said, uh, Andrew Francis, was that it would intercut perfectly with the Alexa. As you see it, what are the main differences between the Alexa and the C300? Well, the Alexa, uh, you know, is the best camera today, probably, in cinema. Uh, the image is, no camera holds the highlights the way the Alexa does. Um, it also looks very filmic because of the resolution of the sensor uh, and the bit of softening filtration they have in front of it. But um, um, basically, the Alexa is the top dog right now in terms of cinema along with the Epic, although the Epic is a bit of a different beast. Um, for di it has different advantages and disadvantages. What's, what's nice about the C300 is that um, it's significantly lighter, significantly lighter than the Alexa, and smaller and also cheaper. Um, and uh, there's a lot of advantages that come with that. Um, you know, I would never be able to travel the world without an Alexa in my backpack, uh, and I need an assistant to help me work with it. Whereas the C300, you can hold with two fingers with a small lens and you can throw that in your backpack maybe even two um, and a small series of lenses and travel the world with it so it's a pretty impressive little camera for what it is. Do you see yourself working with it often in the future in, uh, in things like commercials and short films? Yeah absolutely I think you know if the budget you know calls for an Optimo and Fishers and Technocranes I can probably afford to get an Alexa package but if I'm doing something that's slightly smaller and, and more nimble um, I would definitely uh, look at the C300. Um, you know, I, I basically have the choice of the C300, the Alexa, and the Epic. Um, and the Epic is, is definitely also on the lighter, smaller side. Um, it's just, um, it, it's a little more complex for post for a lot of productions, although it shouldn't be. And uh, also, uh, I think the C300 probably deals with low light better than, than either the Epic or the Alexa right now. And do you own an Epic, right? Yep, I own an entire Epic package. What was the reasoning for you behind purchasing that? I just felt that that was the first camera that can, you know, long term, uh, by being able to change sensors as we went, but also, in general, travel the world and do my own thing with. Um, I, I, you know, obviously having a background as a photojournalist, I'm very attracted to the idea of being able to be, uh, you know, operate solo if something happens. And that's what the Alexa gives you without much compromise in terms of image quality. Uh, you basically have a, a, almost an IMAX camera in your backpack. Every commercial that I do or project, I, I try to find the best camera for it. I treat the Alexa, uh, the Epic, and the C300, for example, or the F3 as different types of film stocks. That's the way I look at them. And uh, depending on the project and how much lighting I have, you know, I think the only slight weakness that the Epic has for me on, on my end is, is low light. I really wish it, you were able to push it a little, you know, one or two more stops. Um, at the same time, when you've got you know a good lighting budget, or you're in a beautiful bright day, or overcast, outdoors, anywhere outdoors is is perfect. Um, you get a pretty incredibly rich image, and the ability to stabilize that 5K content and go up to 120 frames a second in full raw, which is outstanding. Um, you know, at the same time, if you're solo and it's at night and you have no light whatsoever, um, that camera is going to you know give way to a camera like a C300 which you know, can shoot up to 20,000 ASA without really blinking. And real quickly, to circle back to the Volkswagen spot, the music is a really great driving force in that spot. Was that worked out in pre-production, or did that come about during the editing process? Um, I think, hmm, that's a good question. I, I'm pretty sure I had that uh, in mind, but it was definitely worked out in the, in the post. It's rare for me to... Uh, you know, commit to music uh, f before I get going because uh, it's dangerous to do that uh, unless you're working on a very big project and you can secure rights ahead of time. 
um, which is, you know, rare to have that kind of, of leeway, especially with musicians and uh, record companies. <laughs> to get anything done and commit too quickly, right? It's hard. It's hard. It's easier to do for, let's say, you know, a, a, a narrative film or a really big campaign. Uh, but most commercials, it's pretty dangerous to commit yourself to music. Definitely commit yourself to a tempo and a mood, but don't lock yourself in with a song, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. This is the way that you should never really lock yourself into an actor when you write a screenplay for the same reason. Sure. How, do you, fe- how, do, you, how do you feel about locking yourself into a visual look? Um, I think you have to. Um, you know, I mean, you've got to have a pretty good idea of what it is you're, you're looking to do as a director or a DP or communicate that to your DP mm-hmm. as you go. It doesn't mean you can't change, um, you know, as you arrive on scene and find that all the sunny days you were expecting are now all overcast for the week. But um, I'm definitely always open to change and rea- being reactive. At the same time, you do have to kind of steer the ship in a, in a semi-cohesive uh, direction. Uh, for everyone to follow with you because, you know, the lighting style will determine the locations, the wardrobe, everything, you know, the lighting package, et cetera. So um, I think that's what differentiates being a photojournalist from being a director is that um, not only do you have to have a vision, but you have to be able to communicate it to people and prepare for it as much as you can ahead of time. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've tended to see this propensity more and more uh, with uh, directors or, or cinematographers who tend to shoot purposefully flat with the intention of really pushing the look in post, uh, not always having an idea yeah. of what that look is going to be. I think it's dangerous. I mean, I'm very much a proponent of doing it in camera as much as possible. Um, you know, some of the commercials I've done have uh, more of that bland look because we didn't have the budget for lighting, for example. So that, that VW commercial you mentioned, for example, there was no lighting budget whatsoever. Uh, you know, we spent all our money on the car, the precision driver, and the Russian arm and LAPD escorts. And there was, you know, and the PAs. Uh, but other than that, there was no money for anything else. Um, so you're kind of stuck in that realm. Whereas, um, you know, Mobius is a good example of almost everything was shot in natural light, except for the dialogue with the process trailer and the interior of the plane. Um, so you try to maximize where you use that lighting budget. But, you know, I, I'm very well aware of post. Like, I, 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 one of my, my favorite things to do is actually color correct. So I know how to grade and color and resolve. Uh, yet that being said, I don't rely on them to help give my film the look. They're there to complement it. And I, the reason I learned to grade and I learned those tools is because I want to know what their limitations are. In the same way that I have no interest in doing VFX, but I make a point of sitting around with you know, After Effects or uh, CGI guys, whatever, you know, Flame, whatever software they're using, um, whatever compositing software they're using, to understand where it breaks, where what things that it does very simply that can save you time on set and what things are actually very difficult. And I think even though I don't have any interest in doing it myself, it's important as a director to understand the technology's limitations and also understand the technology's uh, abilities so that when you're on set, you can say, oh, I can fix that in post very easily. Let's not waste half an hour fixing that little problem. Uh, and not doing the opposite where you assume things going to be very simple to, to fix is going to cost you a lot of time and money on the back end. So let me ask you about the Mountain Dew whiteout spot that you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you know that that has a very specific look. Obviously, that's it's black and white for the most part, except for yep. the uh, the product. T- tell me about how that came about and and how those choices were made. That was a very quick commercial. It was very simple. Um, they had a lot of file footage. So some of the stuff of the kids like screaming at the camera are actually uh, file footage that they had shot. Um, and the, my job was to try and make something cohesive uh, by taking non-actors. I think it was uh, eight or nine uh, winners who had won this contest and uh, marry them into a quick little spot uh, that was somehow cohesive. And they wanted me to shoot 16 millimeters um, and uh, film. And I actually did a quick camera test. I was actually in Vancouver shooting that, um, that uh, famous footwear commercial. Um, when I was uh, pitching to direct uh, the Mountain Dew, and I went outside and I interviewed like you know five or six young people on the street uh, randomly, and that's where I actually went into into uh, color. Um, at fi- as, uh, that was part of the Final Cut Pro suite uh, that I was using back then, and I actually gave the film look to it, the black and white grain look, and I said, "Listen, look look at this. You don't have to shoot, you know, 16 millimeter. You can shoot this on a 5D." and give it that look and post that's cohesive, and, and they went for it. Mm-hmm. 
and you also did another uh, famous footwear spot that you directed. Um, the I think it's called Balls, maybe? Is that? Yeah, I didn't direct that. I DP'd that as well. Okay, you DP'd that. All right. It's a, it's a very uh, unknown one that I hide. <laughs> is it real? I saw that on your Vimeo. Is is that? It's it's there. It's there quietly. Uh, <laughs> Should I, we uh, not talk about that? Yeah, you could talk about it. It's pretty funny. I, it's one of those things where I was sitting there with a gaffer, and we were both looking at each other in the tent going, this will never, ever make it onto air. Uh-huh. Um, but if you hear the dialogue in the piece, you'll understand why I was going, this is, there's no way possible this will ever make it to air. I really like the visual style of that ad, uh, especially there's a shot where the actor's uh, shoe steps right on top of us. How was that achieved? He's actually running or jogging by on a big piece of plexiglass. And um, because it's the Phantom, we still had 18Ks to pull that off. What was funny is I think they, the production had trouble with the location, so we were actually only controlled half of the road. And uh, we shot that entire commercial in half a day. Wow. Uh, which is really, really fast. So it's a good credit to the crew. You know, we shot, you know, a bunch of shots of him running in the forest and lit it and the plexiglass shot, as well as the interview of the four women all in it before, uh, before lunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good spot, even though you're you. apparently ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. I just think it's <laughs> funny. I mean, the, the dialogue is, you know, I like a man that does so-and-so. I like a man that does X, Y, and Z. And the last woman goes, I like a woman that has balls. Right. And what you know, it's referring to the balls on the bottom of, of the shoes, which is funny. But at the same time, it's like, oh my god, U.S. censors will never let that go by. Right. Just to circle back a little bit to uh, the beginning, when you were a teenager, was there ever a decision for you to uh, possibly go into filmmaking, since you were so acquainted with it? That was a very big decision when I was eighteen. Um, I got into NYU, I got into USC, and I got into Northwestern. And um, for some reason, I felt that I needed to, as cheesy as it sounds, at the time I said, I want to experience reality before I experience, you know, a world of fiction uh, that's all fake. Um, and so I chose to go into journalism at Northwestern and uh, get my um, uh, bachelor degree in journalism as a, as a reporter. Um, and um, obviously had a really interesting career as a photojournalist uh, and working eventually for the New York Times. Um, so I have really no regrets that, that I didn't go, or I don't have any regrets that I, I didn't go to film school. Um, at the same time, um, it's, it's, it was a big, momentous uh, decision, and we'll see how it works out the long term. It looks like it's working out great for you. At the it, it is. I'm still waiting. My, my measure of, of success uh, has to do with doing my first feature film that I'm proud of. Right. So you know, that's, that's when I'll say, okay, that was worth the risk and everything I went through. Uh, as opposed to having put 20 years uh, into become, you know, being a commercial director or director in general. I, I put it into being a journalist, um, and we'll see if that pays off uh, you know, in the next year or two or three. How is it with you working with, um, with creatives and, and ad agency people? Uh, what, what's that process like for you? I mean, even, even going on like a conference call to, uh, you know, to, to pitch for a, mm-hmm. for a project, what, what's that like? To be honest, it was a huge learning experience uh, initially, um, especially given that I'm very entrenched in budgets and logistics because as a photographer, I was running my own business. Um, I'm always very well aware of all the realities. And I think a lot of times um, you know, they want you to be the, the creative guy who has no concept that you can get 15 helicopters with, with Cineflexes for this one shot because your budget's you know, 100 times smaller than that. Um, so I had to learn to let my producers do that talking and, and really just dream, if you will, and, and, and talk the talk and, and uh, know when not to st- – I always tend to step into that, that landmine of saying, well, I'd love to do this, but I don't think we have it in the budget. You know? um, but you know, conference calls, um, working with clients, uh, I, I, I tell a lot of younger directors that that is one of the hardest parts of the job because you really have to learn how to control yourself and how to be professional and how to set realistic expectations yet also um, know that you can push further in terms of creativity that maybe your budget initially tells you you have. And, um, you know, dealing with egos and, and having a conference call where you're talking to a dozen people that you can't see is very hard because you have no idea. You can't read their, their body language. You can't see their faces. You don't really know who's talking back to you. Um, and it's, it's a, it's an acquired skill for sure. Yeah. And you and don't know how they're, how they're responding to your you ideas. Have no idea. And you don't know the politics behind it. Uh, you can't read that maybe, you know, five people in the room love your idea, but the other six 
uh, are in the, in the other camp. <laughs> sure. And uh, you have no idea of the ego battles that are going on there or the, uh, the amount of uh, back and forth that's been going on in that project for you know, a few months prior to that over 14 you know, different revisions. So it's, it's a tough thing to do. But ultimately, I think um, if you're generally interested in the idea and the concept and uh, executing it, it's pretty – once you realize it, all they're coming to you for is how you're going to bring it together and make it exciting and make it beautiful and uh, make people um, gravitate towards that commercial uh, as, you know, for example, it's fair to say that the famous footwear commercial definitely gets a lot of people's attention. Um, that's your goal as a director or a DP is to stop people on their tracks amidst, you know, this plethora of media that's being thrown at us at all times. Yeah. So I've talked to a lot of directors about that, that conference call and and also the the notion of what they can bring <clears throat> excuse mm-hmm. me what they can bring to a to a spot yeah and and just how to navigate that and 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 what's that like because you're you're coming at this kind of fresh and you're you're talking to somebody who or several people who've been on this for several months developing the hell out of it yeah uh, how, how do you navigate that um with as much passion and energy as you can while at the same time being very sensitive <laughs> right you've got to be really careful not to put your foot in your mouth You've got to be really careful not to offend anybody. Uh, and you've also got to be honest. You know, if, if you see some strengths and some weaknesses, I think it's your job to point it out right there and there. I think people appreciate it when you're forthright as opposed to being a yes man just to get the job. You know, I think people read it right through you if you're just like, oh, of course, no problem. I can do this. No problem. Da, 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 da. And in the back of your mind, you think this is the stupidest idea that I've ever seen or heard. Um, I think it's more important for you to just be honest and upright. Uh, up front and um, to hopefully uh, let them see that you are there with them as a partner, a creative partner, to make this as, as good as possible uh, with the realities of what you have and, and to push it to its limit. Um, but it's, 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 it's definitely uh, can be very challenging sometimes because there can be some severe amount of politics involved and egos. And um, that's what was good for me in terms of being work, working at the New York Times in that that place during certain regimes was a bit of a snake pit and it really taught me how to work within a big corporation and, and huge egos and uh, keep my head down yet also stay focused on the, on the goal. Mm-hmm. And what do you do if, uh, if, if you get an idea that's terrible uh, that you just don't like or respond to in any way? Do you try to find something you like about it? Uh, the one, on the one hand, I don't want to be difficult. Um, I don't want to make their lives difficult. I understand that a lot of times this is what they have to work with. It's what's been approved by the client. Mm-hmm. But the very least you can do is offer them an alternative uh, or a variant of what that idea is. Um, and I think once you've committed to the job, you've committed to the job. So you're only out if it's a really, really bad idea is to not, you know, not do your treatment, not, not take the bid. Mm-hmm. If you really think it's a terrible idea, it's not going to serve anybody to do it um, if it's a bad product in the end. There are legitimately bad commercials out there that we all see. You know, yeah. and uh, I think the majority stay, of them are, are bad. Actually. The majority of them are definitely bad, and um, you know it's a shame. But uh, you know you've got to keep you know uh, going at it and um, do the best you can, and uh, just never. I think the moment you you, you stop believing that you can do something fun and cool, uh, it's time to do something else. That's the way I felt about photography. I would just refuse to take a boring picture. I would keep fighting and fighting and fighting. Uh, and at that point, just with myself, because I really wasn't fighting with anybody, just to get the best I could possibly out of it. You've talked a lot about your persistence and um, and your your persistence in kind of uh, you know uh, practically begging Canon mm-hmm. to let you uh, use the five D. Yep. You, you don't want to be annoying, right? So you're okay. you're you're kind of walking that line between yep. irritating somebody and and trying to get what you want. Yeah, I think it's a very fine line. You never ever want to cross into the territory of being annoying or a pest. Um, or someone that no one wants to be around because then you're, it's a diminishing return at that point. But I think that people can generally see if you're generally passionate about something and you believe in something, you really, really want something, and you're just not going to take no for an answer, uh, more often than not, you're going to get that yes, um, either because people get exasperated but not, not frustrated and not angry. You never want to offend anyone. You never want to push too far. You never want to do anything that's uncomfortable. But if, if the, the root uh, or the genesis of your passion is genuine people see it and I think for me that comes from being a journalist where um, you know for a good two decades you know people slam doors on your face people don't want you there people don't want you reporting about this news or that news they don't want you to do you know what you're doing as a, as a career because 
a lot of time reporters and journalists find out things that people want to hide. And if you're going to rely on, you know, uh, you know, golden invitations as a journalist, you'll never get anywhere. No one's going to open their door and welcome you with tea and have you sit down and tell you everything you want to know. You've got to find out and you've got to push for it. Uh, when you do breaking news, you've got to find a way to get somewhere. You've got to find a way to get a picture as long as it's not illegal or immoral. Um, and if, you know, if your, your heart is in the right place as a journalist, I think you're always justified in doing what you're doing as long as you're not doing anything immoral or illegal. Um, and uh, the same goes for being a filmmaker. You've got to want it because you've got to realize everyone and their mother wants to be a director and a filmmaker. Uh, everyone thinks they're a filmmaker. And the reality is there are very, very few opportunities out there. And you've got to want it more than life itself, uh, within reason, of course. And uh, you've got to fight for it every single day. And uh, when you do succeed, um, sometimes you forget how much work you put into getting, it, getting to that point. Um, but, you know, there isn't a day that I don't get up and go, okay, you know, time to make something happen because uh, no one has ever come knocking on my door with that golden assignment. People see a lot of photographs in my portfolio and go, wow, what an amazing assignment. And I'm like, well, you should have actually read how, poor, how poorly that assignment came off initially uh, on the assignment sheet. It's really about what you make out of what you're given, I think, with any given thing. So what do you have coming up in the future? Is there anything that you're particularly excited about? You, uh, you mentioned you're developing a feature. Mm-hmm. Yep. I noticed on your blog that you, uh, several months ago, you put out a call for uh, writers who might be interested in, in sending you a, a screenplay. Yes. How has that worked out? I, I, that, that's a really interesting way to uh, approach finding a script. It is. Uh, it worked out too well. I received well over 100 scripts within two weeks, and I had to, sh- I, I had to shut it down. Um, I really just had to shut it down. I also realized that you know, it opened up a lot of liability that I knew was there. Right. I, I thought I could control it with you know a few dozen scripts, but it, when it got to the hundreds, I had to actually send everything back and have people sign releases, much to my chagrin. Um, but I now have a standard release that any production company would have because you know if any character from any one of these hundred scripts ever shows up in a film that I do in twenty years, sure, uh, I could potentially be held liable. So uh, that's the part of Hollywood that I hate. Uh, at the same point, um, you know you got to protect yourself and. You know, my, my, um, my goals are 100% genuine. I would, you know, I would never steal a script from anyone. Not to mention that when you put a call out like that, you know, you're basically, you know, how could you steal someone's script? Um, and at the same time, you've got to protect yourself because it is a litigious world. So um, we did get a lot of those scripts. We sent all of them back, and people resubmitted with the release. And uh, I'm also working with other people to develop scripts and screenplays uh, based on several ideas that I have. And, uh, you know, it's a very solitary process that, you know, just you go by day by day. And I used to dread the idea of working on a film for a year prior, you know, in terms of marketing it and getting it sold and developing it. And now I'm actually walking, walking it quite a bit. I find it to be a pretty fascinating process. Um, you know, I was, I was coming from a world where it was a lot of instant gratification because you go out every day and you make a picture and it makes the paper. Whereas now you've got to do that every day and hope that at the end of the year you have something to, to speak about. So the interesting thing to me about what you're doing is is a lot of a lot of commercial directors uh, they will they tend to uh, be put on projects like uh, you know Michael Bay has a production company Platinum Dunes yep and he uh, every every director I think for that that company has been a, a commercial director like Marcus Dispel and Andrew Douglas and mm-hmm. they they you know he he has them remaking uh, you know these seventies horror films yeah um, and and badly usually I think and and also uh, <laughs> you know uh, Zack Snyder, uh, you know, came, he was a commercial director who, who directed Dawn of the Dead and then 300. And it seems like Hollywood kind of goes to commercial directors to, uh, to sort of, um, direct a property that's not necessarily original. Uh, I think Hollywood's broken in general. I mean, the movies that are being made, the scripts that are being chosen, uh, all the reboots and reshoots and sequels. Uh, no one's willing to take any risk right now. Um, all the middle-end films are gone. You're either making very low-budget films or tentpole films, uh, and nothing in between is being made. So I wouldn't look too much to what's being done there. I truck a little bit when you brought up his uh, Platinum Dunes because that was one of the first he, – he bought one of the first screenplays that I read recently that I was really into. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I, was, uh, I finally found a screenplay. I was like, ah, I, this is one I'd love to make. 
and I was on a flight to Singapore. And by the time I landed and contacted the um, the agent, they had sold the script to that that production company. And it's an original script. Yeah, it was an original screenplay that's actually pretty darn good. Wow, that's uh, interesting because that, that's that's not usually what they do. No, no, and they they did <laughs> much to my chagrin. <laughs> well, I wonder if they just bought it to to kind of take it off the market, you know, cool. because it it doesn't it doesn't seem like a move for them that you know. It it's probably right, and and the type of film it was was definitely not a horror film. So I I, I did the same thing you did. I look at what they produced, mm-hmm. the type of directors they had, and like no one that I, that's on their roster would seem to produce this type of film. It's really a shame, uh, and uh, I'll be very shocked if I ever see it hit theaters. But I hope it does because it's a great screenplay. I just wish I could have done it. When you're navigating through that and developing these scripts, it, it is true that the whole kind of uh, middle budget. Uh, you know, range of films, it doesn't really exist anymore. And, no, and even the, the Sundance films, you know, are either, uh, they tend to be super low budget kind of stuff. Yeah. Where do you see yeah. your film coming in? Well, I can't tell you too much right now about the, th- the main film that I'm working on, for obvious reasons. Sure. But it definitely falls within, um, uh, you know, it's all based in either New York or L.A. in a big metropolitan area. And uh, it could be made on the cheap relatively well. So that's what I'm excited about is that, um, it doesn't have to be a humongous budget film to be good mm-hmm. because the story and the idea behind it, I think, is relatively strong um, and doesn't rely on traveling around the world or going back 15 years in, 50 years in time or a huge amount of VFX. You know what I mean? Right. So uh, it's really a, 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 a film about you know, an idea that's very relevant to our times, I think. So, um, you know, um, you take it step by step first. You know, you've got to develop a very strong screenplay, and that's, that's the part I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. I've already talked to about four different solid places in terms of distribution uh, and funding. So, um, you know, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, and, uh, you know, you just keep going. And if, if I can get this idea that people really, really seem to like uh, to become a very strong screenplay, uh, I'm going to keep fighting until that makes it onto screen or until I find a better idea. And what do you think about these other avenues of distribution that, like a filmmaker like Edward Burns, um, who's is, is doing right now? He's he's distributing his movie on i on iTunes. That would be much more aligned towards what I'm looking to do with my first film. Yeah, I I think that if your main goal is to show up, you know, uh, in the in the movie theaters out there under a big uh, brand, um, you know, big you know whether it's Paramount or you know Sony what, or Columbia, I think that's a you know one in a thousand. But if you look at the new distribution models that are popping up, uh, it's much more uh, realistic and positive. Sure, and I think it would, it would actually work with somebody like you because you have a following online already. Yep, yep. You know, and, and that's the thing about like Edward Burns or you know, a filmmaker like Kevin Smith is they already have followings. Yes. Uh, that they, can, they, can, uh, you know, they can put a tweet up and, and uh, promote themselves on, on places like that. Yeah, I mean, you'd be foolish or I would be foolish to ignore that um, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm definitely not. Great. Thank you so much, Vincent. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And that was the great photojournalist-turned-filmmaker, Vincent LaForé. You can find his work at LaForéVisuals.com. On our next episode, I'll be interviewing DV rebel Stu Mashowitz. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ron at swayproductions.com. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered, feel free to send them my way. Please put Spodcast in your subject matter. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast on SwayProductions.com. This is Ron Small saying goodbye.